Today we're beginning a new series. We are going to be looking at the letters to the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. So we're going to be looking at the first three chapters of the last book of the Bible. Um, you may be saying, well, why are we not going to be looking at the other chapters in that, uh, in that book? Uh, there's no real reason other than the sense that I felt the Lord was saying to do uh, the work on the seven churches. And the reason that I think it's right for us to look at the seven churches is because at this stage and season in our life together as a church, we need to be asking this question of the Lord. What do you want from us? What is it that you that are you looking for? What are you what are you calling from us as you pour out your grace? What are the ways and means that that you're going to be working in us to cause your grace, your your fruit, your gifts, your anointing to flow to and through us? Because in those postcards from heaven, because really they are a letter, but they're a very short letter, so they're more like a postcard. In those seven postcards from heaven, we have perhaps the clearest insight in the entire Bible of what Jesus wants from his church. What kind of church does Jesus want? Well, there's only one place in the Bible where Jesus himself personally addresses that question. And so we're going to look at that over the next seven or eight weeks. This week, we're going to just do a little bit of preliminary work because one of the things that you notice about each of the letters is that each letter is resolved or concludes with this phrase. To him who has ears... Listen. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has ears. Obviously, that's a kind of, it's kind of one of those oblique statements that's supposed to include everyone. It's not supposed to be one of those ones where we're to go and examine the church individually to see who has ears and who doesn't have ears. It's a universal statement of expectation. Each one of us has ears. If you have ears, and of course the ears that we're speaking about are not ears that are defined by the physical gift of hearing. Every human being has been gifted with the capacity to hear the voice of God. And when we are reborn and the Spirit of God comes to live within us, that capacity is is made active, is made real. We begin to fulfill our first calling and our first commission to be connected and to be in communion with God. And so each human being has the capacity latent within them. And certainly believers should be conscious that when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, he's not speaking about some of the church. He's speaking to all of us. And so if you have the capacity 
to hear the voice of God, which means everyone, then you need to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And what's fascinating about the first chapter of this most remarkable of books, incidentally, the, the word revelation or apocalypse simply means to draw back or unveil or uncover. We've, we've, tended to, um, we've tended to kind of catastrophize the word to suggest that it's about some, some final cataclysm. And so we talk about apocalyptic television or post-apocalyptic TV, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And of course, we, we're, we're using the word in a way that is, a, is, is kind of popular parlance. But the actual word, this, this word apocalypse means to unveil. And so right here in the first chapter, we, we begin to get a sense that what God wants to do is to unveil something, to, to reveal something to us, to, to pull back the curtain on something. And one of the things that you're conscious of immediately is that John is there on a Sunday, the Lord's Day. He's in the Spirit, which means that he's able to commune with the Spirit, to see the things that the Spirit is is revealing. And so in the Spirit, John has the capacity to recognize what it is that God is unveiling before him. The world is not simply what we see with our physical eyes. There is so much more. In fact, what we see with our natural eyes would be perhaps best understood in the same way as we see just a small percentage of an iceberg above the surface of the ocean. What John reveals here as he's listening to Jesus address him personally as his messenger to the church, what he sees here is the, is the curtain pulled back and the nine-tenths of what it is that we miss most every day. Apocalyptic literature in the Scriptures Uh, like this literature here at the end of the New Testament, is literature that is usually born out of great struggle, times of exile and persecution, times of, of, of great pressure being applied to the people of God, perhaps an invading army invading the land of Israel, perhaps, perhaps, the people of God being persecuted in a, in a land of exile, perhaps the great empire of Rome wielding its brutal power against the children of God. In those times, we see the emergence of the apocalyptic literature. In those times, it's as though the people of God are more ready to be in the spirit as John describes himself and ready to to see what it is that God wants to reveal. 
I promise you we'll get to uh, the reading of this passage in a moment, but just let me give you one example of what I mean. I was um, working in the inner city, Sally and I uh, had a small young family, they're all old and adults and got their own children now, but they were just little kids then and Sally knew that I was in need of some spiritual refreshment and she knows what I'm like. She, she doesn't think that the best way for me to get that is to go and lie on a beach. I need to go and do something that is, that is kind of challenging. And so she said, you need to go off on a retreat somewhere. So I, I went to the Brecon Beacons, a, a, a kind of wilderness in the southern part of Wales. And I got there, I, I had this, uh, this little camper van. I got there, I prayed and I fasted and I climbed the mountains and I talked to the Lord. And um, one day towards the end of my time, I'd, I'd been in a village, I'd uh, visited one of the local taverns and um, I wasn't pickled in any way, I want to suggest I was, I was just eating a ploughman's lunch as I remember. And I was, I was walking back after being in the, uh, in the pub and I decided that the quickest way, I'd, I'd got my map with me, these are the days before Google Maps and all of that stuff, uh, I got my map with me and I decided the quickest way to get back was straight through the forest, down to the county road and then walk back to the campsite. And so I just headed off into the, into the forest and of course by now, the days are drawing shorter and um, it's beginning to get dark as I head into the forest. And as I get further and further into the forest, I start trying to remember whether there are wolves still in England and <laughs> whether there are really no dangerous animals. People say there are no dangerous animals in, in England, but it's a, it, you, know, you begin to hear things in the woods and you begin to feel a little bit kind of anxious and the woods closing in on me the foresters had not cleared the wood in any way. Even the firebreak was, was filled with fallen trees. And so it became more and more difficult. I, I really had to press in to get through. And I was getting scratched and my shirt was now torn. And as I pressed on down into the forest, I was suddenly taken into an entirely different scene. I could hear the clanging sounds of hand-to-hand -hand combat. I could smell the acrid smell of blood. I could hear the cries of the warriors. And all around me was a battlefield full of valiant soldiers fighting with shield and sword. And at the center of the battlefield, I saw two great knights, one in bright shining armor, the other in black armor. And the, and the, the knight that I took to be the representative of the church of Jesus Christ was, was pressing the other knight hard. And was, and was gaining an advantage. And at that moment, I saw the dark night stumble. And I exulted. I 
I felt like we were winning. And then the strangest sound began to emanate from this night of darkness. He began to laugh. It was just a little gentle laugh to begin with and then it was a great roaring laughter. And at that moment I, I kind of lost any sense of where I was or what I was doing or even the battle in front of me and I just called out to God. I said, why is he laughing? And I felt as though the Lord said to me, and this has stayed with me ever since. I felt as though the Lord said to me, he thinks he knows your church better than you do. And he thinks that you'll give up before he has to give ground. And that was the end of it. I stumbled out of the wood onto the county road and walked home in a bit of a daze. I, I got back to the, the camper van, turned the lights on. I was covered in mud. I got blood streaks on my shirt. I, I couldn't wear the shirt again. It was like I'd been in the battle myself. But it seemed as though for just a moment, the veil had been pulled back and I'd been blessed with an insight into a world beyond the one that I would normally see. Well, such a situation far more significant than anything I had seen is a situation that confronts John the Apostle, who never claims the title in this book, but simply presents himself humbly as a brother. John, the last of the apostles, an old man, who is the recognized leader of all of the Christians of Asia Minor and the seven key churches that are gonna be addressed. John, who is the last of the apostles to walk the earth. John, who was perhaps the youngest of the 12, is now the last one remaining. And he has been exiled and put in a concentration camp on an island called Patmos off the coast of Asia Minor, off the coast of what we know as Turkey. And when you're sent to one of those labor camps, you're not expected to return. Strangely, the memory of the church is that John actually was released and came back to Ephesus and completed his writing, the writing of Revelation and the Gospel. But he perhaps never expected that when he went there. And yet, on the Lord's Day, we're told he was in the Spirit. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, 
Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amazing, remarkable, incredible vision of the ascended, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. John, on the Lord's day, no doubt remembering that that he was the first to see and believe. Remember that. He was the first to see and believe. He got ahead of Peter. He was younger than him. He got ahead of Peter and got to the empty tomb and looked in and saw that the that the grave clothes had folded in on themselves as if a body had risen through them. So what it means when it says they were in their folds. And Peter looked in and saw that there was no body and came away and wondered what was to be done. John looked and it says he believed. And so John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's reflecting, no doubt, on these things and trusting the Lord and and pressing into the Lord in the terrible circumstances of this labor camp, this concentration camp that he's been sent to. And he hears the voice of Jesus. Now, what's amazing is this. Amongst all of the attributes and characteristics of the ascended Lord Jesus, Eyes like fire, hair like wool, face like the midday sun. Of all of the attributes that we see illustrated and symbolized in this magnificent vision, it is the voice of Jesus that has the greatest impact on John. And it is the voice of Jesus that has the greatest number of symbols associated with it. The voice is a trumpet. The voice is a sword. The voice is the sound of rushing waters. The voice is a waterfall. 
This voice is the voice that will address the churches of Asia Minor. This is the voice, the voice of Jesus communicated by the anointing and power of the Spirit. This is the voice that if we will hear it, will address us today. Now of those, of those symbols, of those pictures of the voice of Jesus, the one that's least familiar to us because, just because of its, of its singularity is this idea of the rushing waters. And so we're gonna spend more time uh, looking at that. But let's just be clear as we continue to whom this letter is being addressed. There, I think we've got a slide that just shows us where it is that the, the churches are. These, these churches are in a, in a circuit, circu, circulating, as it were, in the western part of what is modern-day Turkey. If we place that in a wider context within the Mediterranean world, then we see up there in the top middle, you can see the seven churches and of course, way over here on your right is the Holy Land. Way over there in the top left is, is Greece. So these are, these are the locations that are being addressed, but of course, these are the first locations, not the last. Today, the current location is Kettering, Dayton, Ohio, the United States, 2019. And his voice is like a trumpet, a trumpet that calls us to attention. When you look at the trumpet in Scripture, you see that on Mount, on Mount Sinai, when Moses is going up to receive the Ten Commandments, there is the great trumpet blast calling the people to attention. When, when the kings are, are crowned, then there are great trumpet blasts calling people to attend to this remarkable event. The voice of God is calling you to attention, to stand up, as it were, to come to attention and to listen to the God of your bodies and souls. As well as attention, the trumpet, the voice of God signals an alarm. Nehemiah, when he's building the wall, has the man with the trumpet next to him. So that if there's anyone attacking them, he can sound the alarm immediately. We have, of course, a number of examples of God calling this people of the old covenant to the alarm of war. 
Joel 2 and Jeremiah speak of the trumpet of God sounding and sounding an alarm. And maybe today you need to be stirred not only to attention, but to alarm in the sense that your life is not progressing and you are not able to pursue what it is that you thought you were able to pursue. You've been cut in on by an enemy. Your, your progress has been halted by someone who hates you. And today, you have to be stirred to alarm so that you can take up the armour of God and the sword of the Spirit and stand in the power that God gives you. As well as attention and alarm, of course, we see in the story of Jericho and in other places that the trumpet is used to sound not simply attention or alarm, but attack. What is it for Christians to attack? Well, sadly, we can't go to social media to discover what it is that we're supposed to do by way of attack. Because somehow we have categorized our brothers and sisters as our enemies. Of course, the only assault that we would make is the assault on the kingdom of darkness, overcome by the instruments of light, by faith and hope and love. And so when we hear the sound of attack, we dress ourselves as servants and see the enemy run in fear. I said the sound of many waters is the one that we know least, so I'll address that last, even though it comes second in the text. The sword. The sword is described in, in very simple and clear terms. It is a sharp sword emanating from the mouth of Jesus. A sharp sword, which the writer to the Hebrews tells us is so sharp that it is able to separate the inseparable. You cannot separate your body from your spiritual self. You can't do it. You can't separate marrow from bone. If you cut through a bone, you can't tell where the marrow ends and the bone begins. It's inseparable. And yet, the word of God is so sharp, it can separate us from the things that we thought were part of us. I wonder how many times we've walked through our life assuming that we can never change in the addiction, the behavior, the personality trait that has become 
the familiar part of our life and perhaps a burden to us and to others. Yes, you can't change yourself and neither can I change myself. But the word of God is sharp enough to separate you even from the things that you believe are part of you, that you can never get away from your past, your, your sense of struggle, the, the shadows that are cast from your childhood, the, the way in which you have inculcated and embraced an identity that is not an identity that God has given you and yet an identity that you find yourself impossible to separate from. The Word of God is able to do that. You're not a loser. You're not a failure. You're not an addict. You're not a sinner. Yes, with Paul, in humility, you may call yourself the chief of sinners, but Paul knew that that was not his identity. You see, we need something that will help us that will separate us from the things that hold us and condition us. And the word of God is sharp enough to do that. The word of God is not only sharp, it's also serviceable. The idea of it being double-edged, of course, is that it's able to be used in lots of different kinds of circumstances and conditions. It's not just something that you use with a single edge. It's not just for chopping. The the image that is perhaps in the mind of Paul is the gladius, the most common sword of the day, the principal instrument of warfare in the Roman Empire, a short sword with a double edge and a very sharp point. And it could be used for all kinds of different things. It was serviceable. The Word of God is not just active on Sunday. It's useful in your lunch break on a Tuesday. It's not just helpful in terms of your eternal salvation. It can help you with your marriage and with your children and with your work. It is serviceable. It can be used in so many different circumstances. And it is that voice, the voice of Jesus brought to us through the inspiration and anointing of the Holy Spirit that addresses us today in every circumstance of our life. And of course, as well as being sharp and serviceable, it's also able to stab. This is the thing about the sword that's being described here, a sword that would be most familiar to the people who read these words for the first time or heard them read to them. Because of course, at the beginning of this uh, amazing book, it says, to those who read these words aloud, know that you're blessed. And so perhaps these, these words were first intended to be read aloud in the assembly of the churches. And as they're read aloud, 
Yes, they, they do the work, the sharp work that only the Word can do, separating us from old identities and, and allowing us to embrace new identities. It is serviceable in addressing every area of our life, but when we need to stop, the Word of God can stop us dead. The Lord said to Paul on the road to Damascus, perhaps referring to the similar work of the Word of God, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. The convicting, penetrating, stabbing work of the Word. Don't resist that today. because it just becomes hard work. It's hard to resist that stabbing work of the word. But then there's this, there's this other image. And uh, with all apocalyptic literature, the, the thing that we need to do, of course, is to use the whole scripture to understand it. Otherwise, we'll start coming up with all of these fantastical ideas that you'll find on the internet on any moment of the day where people are interpreting all kinds of things and suggesting that, you know, there's pictures of helicopters and battleships and all kinds of stuff in there, which, sure, they could be. <laughs> but it's much more likely that they are images that are drawn from other parts of Scripture that are known to us as the Word comes to us as it were, in two or three witnesses. Things are established by two or three witnesses, says Jesus. The scriptures themselves tell us that things are established by two or three witnesses. And so if you find something in Revelation, and I know some of the house churches are studying it right now, then go to another part of the scripture that uses the same kind of imagery and see what it's applied to there and then see if it'll help you with what it is that Revelation is saying. And so we have this word, this picture of the voice of Jesus sounding like a great cataract, a great waterfall, a great series of downfalls and rushings. And whenever you're near a place like that, if you've ever been to Niagara, it's impossible to speak out loud to the person next to you because there is the sound of rushing water all around you. So we can get the majesty of what it is that John is hearing, but, but what is the meaning alongside the majesty? Well, to understand that, we need to go to another part of Scripture that uses the same kind of language. And again, it's a book that is familiar with apocalyptic language. If you'll turn with me to Ezekiel, chapter 43, and it's entirely appropriate to look in the introduction to find out where Ezekiel is. Nobody really knows where it is in the Bible just by kind of flicking to it. Find Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel is this, is this prophet priest caught up in the exile, obviously an incredibly educated man, a man with enormous capacity personally, and he has been taken by an angel 
to see what it is that God plans for his people after the exile is complete. And here in Ezekiel 43, it says this, then the man, that's the angel, then the man brought me to the gate facing east. So just to place it in context, Ezekiel in his vision is in the, in, is in the rebuilt Jerusalem and in the reconstructed temple. And he's at the east gate of the temple. And I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. Now, if, if that had been communicated to somebody in the days of Ezekiel, they would have perhaps put an exclamation mark behind that. Because the east is the place where the foreigners live, not the friends. The east is the place where the sinners live, not the saints. East is where Esau went to live, not Jacob. The east is not a place for the glory of the Lord. And what does glory mean? Kavod in, in Hebrew. What does it mean? It means, it means the, the manifest presence of God. Remember your singing last week? The hairs on the back of your arms stand up. Remember your they're just about to take communion and you sense a heaviness. Not a, not a burdensome heaviness, but a, but a heaviness of, of that sweet presence of God around you. Everybody's experienced and encountered that. That's what the Bible calls the glory of God. It actually means the weight of God's presence in Hebrew. The weight. And so the weight of God's presence. This, this amazing sense that God is in the room and we should be on our faces. This feeling that God is among us. That's the glory of God. And I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters and the land was radiant with his glory. So what does that mean? Well, let's look at Ezekiel 47. So, Ezekiel's carrying on with the, uh, with the angel. The angel shows him all of the precincts of the temple. And then he, he kind of pans back from what it is that he's shown him in detail. And he shows him the kind of the panorama of the temple mount. And he sees a trickle of water emanating from the threshold, from the, from the doorway of the most holy place. Just a trickle of water. And the trickle of water comes past the altar and towards the east gate. 
And then as it's going that way, it makes a turn towards the south and goes out through the gate that the pilgrims would leave through. The pilgrims are gonna come through the north gate in Ezekiel's vision and leave by the south gate. And so this trickle of water that's begun in the very presence of God as the people have worshipped, this trickle of water clearly symbolising the Spirit of God is now moving with the people of God through the gate through which the people of God leave as they go from worship. And as they leave through the south gate, the water is ankle deep and the water turns towards the east, towards the darkness, towards the foreigners and not the friends, towards the sinners and not the saints, towards the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is in the Great Depression. The Great Depression in Hebrew is Arabah. It means the great ditch. At the bottom of the great ditch, the Arabah, the Great Depression, are the ruined cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and a dead sea that is so dead that nothing can live in it or near it. Listen, as the river gets deeper, and heads towards the east. Ezekiel 47 and verse eight. The angel said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Isn't that amazing? So there's a river flowing from the house of God, going where the feet of the people of God are being drawn toward the east. And as that river goes towards the east, it has to go down into the Arabah. How far down? further down than any other place on the planet. You may not know this, but this is actually the truth. The lowest place on planet Earth is the Dead Sea. It is 1,300 feet from the top of the Judean escarpment. It would be twice as large as Victoria, four times the size of Niagara, This would be the greatest waterfall the world had ever seen. And as the water cascades down into the Arabah, God is speaking. Jesus is speaking with the voice of many waters. So, what is the voice saying? Well, the voice of the waterfall is certainly challenging us. Because if you look at the beginning of chapter 47, the the man leads 
Ezekiel in the water and first of all it's ankle deep and then it's knee deep and then it's up to his waist and then it's so deep no one can cross it by walking. You have to swim. And so now your feet are off the bottom. And so the word of God calling you in the voice of many waters is always challenging you to go deeper. Are you prepared to go deeper today? The voice of many waters is going beyond the challenge and calling you to recognise that the Spirit of God joined with the Word of God, of course, the Word of God comes to us by the Spirit of God, recreates so that death becomes life. The Dead Sea becomes something completely different. Verses nine and following, swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be a large number of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En Eglame. There will be places for spreading nets from the very south to the very north, says Ezekiel. <laughs> the voice of many waters is challenging you to go deeper, is, is creating something that you can never change. And is finally calling you, calling you. You see, if you're going to go deeper with God, then eventually you have to get to the point where you're just going with God. And if you're going to go with God, then you've got to go where he's going. And where he's going is the Arabah, the Great Depression. Where he's going is the dead place to bring it alive. Where he's going is towards the sinners, towards the foreigners. And he's hoping that you take the friends and the saints with you. He's going down. And imagine this, you're in a river that is the life of God and so you cannot die. But you come to a waterfall that you cannot survive. What are you gonna do? There will be a point that God will bring you to regularly in your life where he will say, will, will you go down? Will you go over with me? And then the answer is yours. We've got a picture of a waterfall. I'd like us to put up there. This is, uh, this is Victoria Falls. If you take all of the metrics of waterfalls, how much water, the height of the waterfall, the extent of the river, then the Victoria Falls is the largest. It's not the biggest in all the single metrics, but in all of them taken together, this is the greatest waterfall. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And the waterfall being described as the voice of many waters is twice as big as this. Can you hear the voice? 
Can you hear the challenge? Do you hear the call? This is what the Lord is saying to us, I believe. We need to uncover our ears so that we can hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And if today, like me, you're asking God not to speak more loudly because he's speaking all the time, but if your prayer today is, Lord, help me to listen, and if that's a specific conviction for you this this Sunday, then I want you to come and pray with me right now. As we complete our time together, just come and pray with me. We're not going to take a long time waiting or asking. The prayer team's going to come and you'll hear them praying for you, maybe laying a hand on your shoulder as you come. But if this is the time and this is the moment of conviction to hear more clearly, come and be free to just pray out loud as you come to the front and just ask the Lord. And if the Lord is just prodding your heart this morning right now, then now is the moment not to resist. I know it's embarrassing. I know it's difficult. But now is the moment not to resist. You come to. Lord, I pray that you would uncover my ears. I pray, Lord, that you'd uncover our ears so that we can hear the quietest of whispers. Lord, let us hear the quietest of words. May you find in us, Lord, sensitive people who you can direct as a, as a man directs the water in a stream, Lord. Direct our heart. Direct our heart, Lord, into where you want us to be. And Lord, we pray that as we listen and as, Lord, you take us into deeper waters and as, Lord, we receive the challenge and see the creative power of your word, Lord, I pray that we would rejoice. We would rejoice, Lord, in what it is that you're doing. Lord, may we be people of the word. May we be people of the voice. May we be people who live a life responding to what we hear from you. And we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people say, Amen. Bless you. Bless you, bless you.